Chapter Eighteen of *The Mayor of Casterbridge* by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen. There came a shock which had been foreseen for some time by Elizabeth, as the box passenger foresees the approaching jerk from some channel across the highway. Her mother was ill, too unwell to leave her room. Henchard, who treated her kindly, except in moments of irritation, sent at once for the richest, busiest doctor, whom he supposed to be the best. Bedtime came, and they burnt a light all night. In a day or two she rallied. Elizabeth, who had been staying up, did not appear at breakfast on the second morning, and Henchard sat down alone. He was startled to see a letter for him from Jersey, in a writing he knew too well, and had expected least to behold again. He took it up in his hands and looked at it as at a picture, a vision, a vista of past enactments, and then he read it as an unimportant finale to conjecture. The writer said that she at length perceived how impossible it would be for any further communications to proceed between them now that his remarriage had taken place, that such reunion had been the only straightforward course open to him she was bound to admit. On calm reflection, therefore, she went on, I quite forgive you for landing me in such a dilemma. "'remembering that you concealed nothing before our ill-advised acquaintance, "'and that you really did set before me in your grim way "'the fact of there being a certain risk in intimacy with you, "'slight as it seemed to be after fifteen or sixteen years of silence on your wife's part. "'I thus look upon the whole as a misfortune of mine, and not a fault of yours. "'So that, Michael, I must ask you to overlook those letters "'with which I pestered you day after day in the heat of my feelings. "'They were written whilst I thought your conduct to me cruel.' "'But now I know more particulars of the position. "'You were in, I see, how inconsiderate my reproaches were. "'Now you will, I am sure, perceive that the one condition "'which will make any future happiness possible for me "'is that the past connection between our lives "'be kept secret outside this isle. "'Speak of it, I know you will not, "'and I can trust you not to write of it. "'One safeguard more remains to be mentioned.' that no writings of mine or trifling articles belonging to me should be left in your possession through neglect or forgetfulness. To this end may I request you to return to me any such you may have, particularly the letters written at the first abandonment of feeling. For the handsome sum you forwarded me, as a plaster to the wound, I heartily thank you. I am now on my way to Bristol to see my only relative. She is rich, and I hope will do something for me. I shall return through Casterbridge and Budmouth, where I shall take the packet-boat. Can you meet me, with the letters and other trifles? I shall be in the coach, which changes horses at the Antelope Hotel, at half-past five Wednesday evening. I shall be wearing a paisley shawl with a red centre, and thus may easily be found. I should prefer this plan of receiving them to having them sent. I remain still, yours ever, Lucetta. Henchard breathed heavily. Poor thing! Better you had not known me. Upon my heart and soul, if ever I should be left in a position to carry out that marriage with thee, I ought to do it. I ought to do it, indeed. The contingency that he had in his mind was, of course, the death of Mrs. Henchard. As requested, he sealed up Lucetta's letters, and put the parcel aside till the day she had appointed, his plan of returning them by hand being apparently a little ruse of the young lady for exchanging a word or two with him on past times. He would have preferred not to see her, but deeming that there could be no great harm in acquiescing thus far, he went at dusk and stood opposite the coach office. The evening was chilly, and the coach was late. 
Henshaw had crossed over to it while the horses were being changed, but there was no Lucetta inside or out. Concluding that something had happened to modify her arrangements, he gave the matter up and went home, not without a sense of relief. Meanwhile, Mrs. Henshard was weakening visibly. She could not go out of doors any more. One day, after much thinking which seemed to distress her, she said she wanted to write something. A desk was put upon her bed with pen and paper, and at her request she was left alone. She remained writing for a short time, folded her paper carefully, called Elizabeth Jane to bring a taper and wax, and then, still refusing assistance, sealed up the sheet, directed it, and locked it up in her desk. She had directed it in these words. Mr. Michael Henshard, not to be opened till Elizabeth Jane's wedding day. The latter sat up with her mother to the utmost of her strength, night after night. To learn to take the universe seriously, there is no quicker way than to watch, to be a waker, as the country people call it. Between the hours at which the last toss-pot went by and the first sparrow shook himself, the silence in Casterbridge, barring the rare sound of the watchman, was broken in Elizabeth's ear only by the timepiece in the bedroom, ticking frantically against the clock on the stairs, ticking harder and harder, so it seemed to clang like a gong. And all this while the subtle-souled girl, asking herself why she was born, why sitting in a room and blinking at the candle, why things around her had taken the shape they wore, in preference to every other possible shape, why they stared at her so helplessly, as if waiting for the touch of some wand that should release them from terrestrial constraint. What that chaos called consciousness, which spun in her at this moment like a top, tended to and began in. Her eyes fell together. She was awake, yet she was asleep. A word from her mother roused her. Without preface, and as the continuation of a scene already progressing in her mind, Mrs. Henshaw said, "'You remember the note sent to you and Mr. Farfrae, "'asking you to meet someone in Durnover Barton, "'and that you thought it was a trick to make fools of you?' "'Yes.' "'It was not to make fools of you. "'It was done to bring you together. "'Twas I did it.' "'Why?' said Elizabeth with a start. "'I wanted you to marry Mr. Farfrae.' "'Oh, mother,' Elizabeth Jane bent down her head so much that she looked quite into her own lap. But as her mother did not go on, she said, "'What reason?' "'Well, I had a reason. Twill out one day. I wish it could have been in my time. But there, nothing is as you wish it. Henchard hates him.' "'Perhaps they'll be friends again,' murmured the girl. "'I don't know. I don't know.' After this her mother was silent and dozed, and she spoke on the subject no more. Some little time later on, Farfrae was passing Henchard's house on a Sunday morning, when he observed that the blinds were all down. He rang the bell so softly that it only sounded a single full note and a small one, and then he was informed that Mrs. Henchard was dead, just dead, that very hour. At the town pump there were gathered, when he passed, a few old inhabitants who came there for water whenever they had, as at present, spare time to fetch it, because it was purer from that original fount than from their own wells. Mrs. Cuxham, who had been standing there for an indefinite time with her picture, was describing the incidents of Mrs. Henchard's death as she had learnt them from the nurse. "'And she was as white as marble stone,' said Mrs. Cuxham, "'and likewise such a thoughtful woman, too. Ah, poor soul!' that a minded every little thing that wanted tending, 
"'Yes,' says she. "'When I'm gone and my last breath blowed, "'look in the top drawer of the chest in the back room by the window, "'and you'll find all my coffin clothes, "'a piece of flannel that's to put under me, "'and the little pieces to be put under my head, "'and my new stockings for my feet. "'They are folded alongside, and all my other things. "'And there's four-ounce pennies, the heaviest I could find, "'a tied up in bits of linen for weights, two for my right eye and two for my left,' she said. "'And when you've used em, and my eyes don't open no more, "'bury the pennies, good souls, and don't ye go spendin' em, for I shouldn't like it. "'And open the windows, as soon as I'm carried out, "'and make it as cheerful as you can for Elizabeth Jane.' "'Ah, poor heart!' "'Well, Martha did it, and buried the ounce pennies in the garden. "'But if you'll believe words, that man Christopher Coney "'went and dug em up and spent em at the three mariners.' "'Faith,' he said, "'why should death rob life of fourpence? "'Death's not of such good report "'that we should respect him to that extent,' says he. "'Twas a cannibal deed,' deprecated her listeners. "'Gad, then, I won't quite have it,' said Solomon Longways. "'I say it to-day, and tis a Sunday morning, "'and I wouldn't speak wrongfully for a silver sixpence at such a time. "'I don't see no harm in it. "'To respect the dead is sound doxology, "'and I wouldn't sell skeletons, leastwise respectable skeletons, be varnished for anatomies, except I were out of work. But money is scarce, and throats get dry. Why should death rob life of fourpence? I say there was no treason in it. Well, poor soul, she's helpless to hinder that or anything now, answered Mother Cuxon. And all her shining keys will be took for her, and her cupboards opened, and little things that didn't wish seen anybody will see, and her wishes and ways will all be as nothing. End of chapter 18